0: Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovel. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here.
1: I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to this special edition of The Feed. I'm The Canada Day weekend is the first of three amazing summer-long weekends. The weather is hot, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, and everyone is anxious to hit the road and get this party started. Here to help us kick off the summer holidays in a big way is our favourite tour guide, Destination Ontario's Kevin Forget. Welcome to The Feed, Kevin. It's always so great to be with you. I feel like I should pack my bags and start walking out the door right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm ready to do a road trip with you anytime, man. So oh, I'm so happy to be on the show and, and happy Canada Day weekend for sure. Yeah,
1: isn't it just the greatest? And we have so much to look forward to. You know, the, the threat and the, the, the cloud that's been over us for the past couple of years, it's beginning to lift. It's beginning to move away. We, though, are dealing with inflation, higher interest rates, gas prices are high, food prices are high. That's part of inflation. And it makes it difficult to plan a trip for the family to enjoy this summer. So what's your best advice when it comes to a staycation for those of us in York Region?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the truth of it is is just going out and doing something makes it feel like you're, you're on a vacation. You get to do something with the family, you know, do a, a walk by yourself. It doesn't have to be far, right? Like, a staycation doesn't mean that, you know, it, it has to be six hours away. It doesn't mean it has to be a half hour away. The fact that you're just kind of staying in Ontario and enjoying maybe a little getaway with the family and just planning something. And like you said, that cloud's been over us and it's time to get out and really enjoy ourselves. Yeah.
1: And is it something that you do plan with the family? I mean, would now be the time to say, "Gang, let's get together, get around the kitchen table. Let's talk about what you want to do, where you want to go, and we'll make a plan together."
2: For sure. And what we can talk about today really is it doesn't involve, you know, overnight stays and booking hotels because, you know, that is a, an option, but really just planning some day trips and the key thing is because things are so popular right now and people do want to get out and do things, it is important to plan ahead, maybe, you know, book ahead, pre-book tickets. That way, when you get somewhere, you're not disappointed. And one of the really kind of key things that I'll talk about, which is really important is a lot of people plan day trips to a variety of Ontario parks. And what they've done recently is they've launched pre-booking options for days. So before you could book your campsite in advance and guarantee that you had somewhere to stay, but now you can also guarantee that you can get a spot to enjoy the beach just for the day. So there's 33 Ontario parks across the province that you can pre-book five days before you visit. So one of the parks in York Region is Simple Point Provincial Park, right on the beautiful shores of Lake Simcoe. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the parks of many parks that you can pre-book in advance. You don't want to drive all the way there, pack up the family, get there and find out that the park's full. So make sure you plan in advance for sure.
1: And if it's close, it's good on gas. And also an idea is maybe to pack a lunch with you so that you don't have to spend money on food wherever you go.
2: That's true. And, and, you know, you can pack your lunch. You know, you don't have to go far because, yeah, the truth of it is, gas prices are expensive. But we can talk about a couple of places that are within York Region or just outside of and One of my favorite places where you can pack a lunch or even just enjoy a lunch or maybe some honey, (laughs) I love myself some honey, is the Ontario... Honey Creations. And this is a place on Airport Road in Mulmur, so about an hour north of Vaughn, so not too bad on gas. You can shop there, get all the lunch and honey stuff that you want. But the big kind of key interactive experience is the beekeeping. Up close and personal, you get to actually put the bee suit on, mm. the whole kit and caboodle, <laughs> the, the face stuff, the, 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 the jacket, all of that stuff, and step inside the honey house and get to be part of the harvesting behind-the-scenes See how the honey is created from the bees. We all know how important beekeeping is now and keeping our bees alive. But that's sort of an interactive, fun experience for the entire family. doesn't cost a lot of money. You know, you can enjoy some food there also. And then the payoff after the honey experience is, I don't know how this comes hand in hand, but if you go there, you'll find out after you do the bees, You can also see the resident pigs that they have on site there, too, and rub the pig's bellies. (laughs)
1: And and don't mistake them for a member of your family. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Oh, it sounds like fun. And you can also, you know, with a little bit of money that you have in your pocket uh, that you may have taken from your piggy bank, you can buy some honey as you say goodbye. And I would think that the prices would be a little bit easier on the pocketbook because it's created right there.
2: For sure, for sure. And if you're looking kind of for just more of like outdoors, hiking, you know, biking, fishing, a lot of people want to try fishing and they don't have the gear to do it. There's a place called the Island Lake Conservation Area. This is in Orangeville. Uh, It's part of the Credit Valley conservation sort of system. So there's a lot of conservation parks. So it's open seven days a week. Um, It's um, it's so hard to describe because there's so much to see and do there. It's about 820 acres located um, like just on the Credit River in Orangeville. And like I talked about, They rent the fishing gear on site too. So if you want to try it, but you don't have the stuff to do it, you can do that. They've also rent the canoes, the kayaks, but also if you just want to pack a lunch, like Mm -hmm. we talked about (laughs) and go for a hike, they have an eight kilometer trail that brings you all along Island Lake conservation area. So it's at your own pace. You know, if depending on how what your mobility issues are, how fast you want to walk, you really just go at your own leisure and enjoy a lunch along the way.
1: And speaking of trails, the 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 jewel in the trail crown here in Ontario, the Bruce Trail. Tell me about it, and and has it been changed, upgraded, uh, altered in any way over the years? So they haven't
2: done a ton of trail uh, upgrades, but they, they have upgraded the signage system and the systems that you can do to walk through the trails. The Bush Trail system is a fantastic system that really allows you to kind of see the different elevations. It, it changes along the way so that, that you know, I, I, it's not a bad thing that it hasn't been updated <laughs> because the trails are beautiful. Uh, but the, what they have done is updated the, the signage and the systems to be able to walk around.
1: Swimming, and that's what a lot of people want to do at this time of the year. And there are all sorts of options, but are there? I mean, what do we need to know, and how do we plan for something like that?
2: So there is swimming options, and so the conservation parks that I talked about, you know, the Ontario parks that we talked about are, are swimming options. You know, a lot of the pools and all the different municipalities are offering a ton of different swimming programs. So through the, you know, the town of Richmond Hill, the town of Newmarket, Vaughan, York region, you know, all around the Newmarket, Georgina, all of our great uh, regions that we have in York region are offering more and more summer camps and swimming options. But uh, there's one really neat thing that uh, I found out about. I haven't done it personally myself, but I do have friends that have done it. If you want to try swimming slash scuba diving, they actually have that. It's called scuba 2000. (laughs) It's on Leslie street in Richmond Hill. And you learn, To scuba dive. It's one of those things that's on a lot of people's bucket list. I know it's on my bucket list, but you go there, you can have uh, practice opportunities. It's a whole tropical dive pool that they have on site. So you learn to dive, they'll show you how to do it. They'll give you all the gear to do it. And even for the little ones, so 10 and under, they have what they call the bubble maker course. And it sort of (laughs) gets them comfortable with being in the water, you know, putting their heads under the water. So it's a little More extreme than maybe some of the public swimming that we're talking about, but if you're looking to actually try scuba diving, you can do that at Scuba 2000.
1: I have this dream of staying in a tiny little cabin, and there are like ten cabins all in a row, and around a pond or around a lake, and somewhere in southern Ontario. Does that exist? Cheap and cheerful, no bells and whistles, really back to basics, and and an overnight there. Do those mom and pops uh, shops still exist?
2: They do exist, and there are so many of them. So yeah, there are the five-star resorts that are on some of the big lakes, but there are also still, like you said, the cute and very you know cozy, quaint uh, cott- cottages and cabins uh, right across Ontario. So there are places, there's one that just opened up that has two little cottages, it's called the Muskoka Beer Spa, and uh, it's it just, the best way to describe it is, it's just south of Bala, in a little town called Torrance, and So similar to the little cottages and cabins that you're talking about where, you know, they've got the rustic wood on the walls, they've got the pools for you to enjoy outside, there's a little lake to be able to enjoy. The one unique spin to this one is, you know, when I mentioned Muskoka Beer Spa, there has to be a beer angle in there somewhere. You can actually order inside of your little cottage cabin your own little keg of beer to be able to enjoy during your stay, or it's a short little walk to one of the one of the most amazing breweries also in Ontario, the Clear Lake Brewery. So, you know, there's a ton of options of cottages and cabins and we have a full list on our website.
1: I am packed and ready to go. You're fantastic. Happy trails, Kevin. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, have yourself an awesome summer, Anne.
1: So, summer also means full-on pool season for kids everywhere, including right here in York Region. But before we take the plunge, let's talk swimming safety with Life Saving Society Ontario's Barbara Byers. Welcome to The Feed, Barbara. It is so great to be with you again. It's great to speak with you, Anne. So it's swimming season, it's pool and lake and river, swimming for all ages, but we focus on children at this point, and particularly over this long Canada Day weekend. Drowning is the second leading cause of injury-related death in children under 10 here in Canada. How do we handle a stat like that?
3: Well, uh... Summer is our happy time in Canada, and one of the things we love to do is to go swimming and be around the water. But it's so important, especially with children, to really understand and to be on guard with our own children to make sure they're safe and to make sure our attention is focused on their safety whenever they could possibly be near water.
1: Does it make any sense that a child can be allowed to swim without having had swimming lessons?
3: No. Um, learning to swim is a skill where you need some instruction. You need to learn. And the best way to learn is to have your children in swimming lessons. You can even start as a with a toddler in parent and taught lessons. And then from that, put them in lessons so they can learn the skills and learn the breathing and they can learn the the best mechanics. It's so important in our country with so much fresh water around us, more than any other country in the world and all of the pools we have as well.
1: How important is it that the caregiver, the parent, the grandparent, the sibling, knows how to swim?
3: Um, it's really ideal if the parent and the caregiver knows how to swim. But if, if they are a non-swimmer, What I always recommend is when they take them swimming, they go to a place where lifeguards are are supervising, such as a a public pool, or some of the beaches have lifeguards as well. And then your role as the parent is to watch your child, and if they get into difficulty, you can alert the lifeguard as well. But um, even better, as a parent or caregiver... Take lessons yourself. It's never too late. There are lessons at municipal pools for adults taught by instructors who are used to teaching adults. It can help provide the basics as well. It's never too late to learn.
1: What about the efficacy of flotation devices like water wings? Is that just kind of a band aid solution?
3: Well, actually very simply, water wings are toys mm-hmm. and life jackets are a safety device. So Water wings, which uh, for people who don't know what they are, those little floaty things, you can slip on the arms of the child and they blow up so and they slip on. A couple of things, they can fall off very easily because if the air is out of them, they can slip off. A hole can get in them very easily. And the biggest concern about uh, water wings is that when a child sort of falls in the water with the water wings on, their arms are floating but their airway is not out of the water. It's most important when you are in the water to make sure you can breathe correctly if you're swimming. And if you are a non-swimmer, you need to keep your airway out of the water. So if you contrast that um, water wing, which is a toy, with a life jacket, the difference with a life jacket, of course, is bigger, but it also has the flotation in the front to ensure their airway is out of the water, and that is the most important thing. So you think of a life-saving life jacket as an extra layer of protection for non-swimmers, especially for young children. You're at the beach, you're at the pool, you're at a campsite. You put that life jacket on, and if for some reason you've lost sight of them for a minute and they fall in, that life jacket will ensure their airways out of the water.
1: How do you know someone is drowning? What are the signs when it comes to this often silent killer.
3: Well, that's the point, Anne. You, you hit right on, there, on the button. It's silent. Many people think back to movies where they see someone waving their arms in the air and going, help, help, I'm drowning. Well, that's that's Hollywood. That's the movies. The reality is when a person is drowning, their airway fills with water and they can't speak. And it can happen very, very quickly, 20 seconds. So it's silent, and it's very, very fast. So because of all of that, you're not going to hear them, and you're not going to see them. You need to have your eyes on them all the time, and you can see if they're getting into difficulty. If you have something else, like a phone, or you're distracted by talking to someone, you may miss seeing that transition from someone happily in the water to someone drowning.
1: It probably would be a, a good idea to know CPR and other aspects of first aid, particularly if you are the pool owner, the homeowner with a pool in the backyard and lots of kids are coming over. How else can you, as the pool owner, as the invitations fly out to all the gang, how do you make that situation safe for the children?
3: Well, first, to your point, it's never too late to learn CPR and first aid, and actually you don't even have to get in the water. So you can sign up for a course, and especially if you have a pool, and to your point, you should have that training. The next thing to keep in mind is when you're having, say, a pool party, or having people over, is you want to control and restrict access to the water, especially for these toddlers. So you want to make sure when any of those toddlers are in the water that a parent or caregiver is with them and i recommend with t- with children under the age of 5 you have a 1 to 1 ratio so for each each young child you have one person watching them in fact they're on guard and they're watching the child because if you have two or three under your care you know of course your attention is diverted so really make sure that no one is in the pool area until you know they're there. And you're you're the boss of your pool. So you designate and say, look, you know, you need to watch this child. You need to watch that child. And if you have to go in and do something, you have to go in the house, you have to use the bathroom or something, then you designate someone else to take your, your role. You need to devote 100% of your attention um, on the children that are in the water and to uh, watch them carefully for any changes in their behavior.
1: And is there anything that you can say to your child? This is the fun time for them. School's out and summer is fully underway. You don't want to scare them out of the water. You want them to be comfortable in the water. So how do you approach that verbally with your child in terms of giving them safety advice but also letting them know that water is one of the best and most joyful things in life?
3: Well, I think, you know, as parents, we often start with the bath with our our babies mm. and our little toddlers, and we make it so much fun, and we they love, most little children love having a bath, and so um, what they do is they sort of take that love to a pool, to a beach. So, in fact, most children are kind of fearless around the water because they've got that almost magnetic attraction to the water, which is good so i always re- recommend is to start your children in parent and taught classes if you can to get them used to it to make it a really fun experience of course the water's colder in a pool than the bathtub that's super uh, important for them to get used to and you can learn safety information as well and you don't want to terrify them um when they're near the water say don't go near that water you'll drown but you want to sh- you want them to understand that they have to respect the water and they they can't go in unless you know mom or dad or the caregiver is with them and they're watching them all the time. So I think respect is probably the most important sort of feeling you want them to have around the water. But some kids are just fearless. They'll just scoot right in and jump in and some are hanging on the wall. So you need to understand your child and that child. But it's good to get them in lessons when they're younger because they're not going to... um, you know, they're less likely to have sort of fear or trepidation or anxiety about about swimming if you start them early.
1: Let's review the steps. We're at a pool party. Uh, there isn't a lifeguard, but there are plenty of, of parents who are, are and caregivers who are there watching, concentrating on what's going on in the pool, but it is noticed that one of the children is drowning. What do you do?
3: Well, first of all you want to clear the pool. Um, I would have someone call 911 right away because you don't know how long that has happened and get uh, get everyone out of the pool, get the emergency um, response coming and then uh, take them out and turn their face out of the water so their airway is out of the water. You want to make sure they didn't have any spinal injury if they didn't you know, dive in or fall in. If that wasn't uh, believed to be the case, then you can turn them. You want to get their airway out of the water And you want to bring them to the side and get them safely out of the water if you can. If not, have them float in the water on their back with their airway out. Um, And if they start coughing and they're making lots of noise, then you want to get them out of the water and help them, you know, themselves clear their airway. And if they're not breathing, then you want to get them on a, a solid surface and start CPR training while the emergency care uh, response is coming.
1: And I hate to ask this question, but I'm going to, how long before death sets in?
3: Well, it really depends. I mean, some people, um, especially children, have have more resilience. And if their airway has been blocked for a little while, it can, be, um, uh, it can be dislodged and they can be just fine. So usually children are more resilient than adults. But say you had a close call at a pool. Say the child was in, And then when you turn them over, you you heard them coughing and so on, it's always good to have them checked out at the hospital. You want to make sure that the airway is clear and there isn't any water down their um, pathway to their lungs. You want to make sure they're fine. So um, it really does depend, but time is so important. So that's why call uh, 911 right away. And so they can. The response can be there as quickly as possible.
1: It's preventable. I mean, this is what we're talking about now. It, it can be prevented with with precautions and with training and with uh, with with commitment to caring and looking after your child, but also the child's commitment to staying safe. It's a lot of responsibility, but it's so much fun being in the water. Let's move from the pool to the beach, to the riverside, to the pond side. What are the, your Best safety tips? And I guess I'm looking at beaches that may not have lifeguards. I know that there's a shortage of lifeguards right now in Ontario, but there may not be lifeguards on duty. So how do we keep our kids safe?
3: Well, I think, you know, an overarching view is to um, look each year with fresh eyes about your child. So, you know, start with, you had a baby last summer, a six-month-old baby. Now that baby is 18 months That's a completely different experience with your child near the water if you're at the beach or at a campsite or at a cottage or something. So that little child is now very mobile and running to the water. So you have to sort of think every season, what are the age of my kids, what can they be doing? Maybe your four-year-old has taken some lessons before, and that may have instilled a lot of... um, uh, courage. So they may want to just jump right off the dock, where the year before they would have been much more cautious. So overall, look at your look at your children, understand what stage they're at, and make sure you're prepared to be um, on guard or watching them at that at that various stage. Um, the other thing is, it's so important to um, 100% watch your your children all the time, uh, as I said, because drownings are, are quiet. It's silent, and it's very quick. You're not going to see out of the corner of your eye a change in behavior. So if you have a phone, which most of us have in some version, put it down, put it away. Uh, don't put your book away. Watch your child 100%. And maybe your kids are older. Maybe they're 8 and 10. They know how to swim. And may you think, okay, I'll just hang out here, but I don't need to watch them. Well, you do, actually, because the transition of someone happily swimming in the water and say your eight-year-old child being a good little swimmer to get him in trouble is so silent. Unless you're watching, you're not going to see that. So lifeguards watch for the eyes. They watch people swimming. And if someone is horizontal and moving along and all of a sudden they go more vertical and they're bobbing up and down, they look and they look at the eyes and they say, okay, there's a problem. So then they will go and rescue that child. So as, as a parent... You need to watch. Watch and see if there's any changes in behavior so you can be there at the ready to, um, to get them to safety.
1: Makes perfect sense. Drowning prevention is the key. Swimming fun is what it should be all about. Mm-hmm. Barbara Byers, where can people go to get more information on having a safe, fabulous time in the water this summer, whether it, you're a kid or you're a kid at heart?
3: Well, you can go to our website, which is lifesavingsociety.com, and there's all kinds of information about swimming safety and programs and training. And uh, this is our happy time of year, Hmm. so we want everyone to be safe and have lots
1: of fun in the water. Barbara, thanks for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. Thank you, Anne. From the water to the roads, Kevin Frankish is next with a strong message from the
4: CAA. Oh, distracted driving, um, it is something we all loathe and we get mad when we see someone else doing it. But come on, folks, you do it too, don't you? I do it. it, it it's all different degrees. Teresa de Felice is uh, joining me for our uh, chat, our semi-regular chats, which I'm really enjoying, Teresa. Me too. Teresa is from the uh, CAA, and I'm very passionate about driving uh, and, and trying to make the roads safer. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about distracted driving. And I think the first thing that that we have to get to is, is, you've done surveys, you're doing another survey right now about distracted driving. What are people getting wrong about what distracted driving really is?
5: Thanks, Kevin. I think the issue is that people focus on technology that it's mobile devices uh, that they they're seem to be worried about the most. And yet, there are so many other things that are distracting us when we drive that we're not putting any stock in that. We're focused on the mobile device. And meanwhile, what we're seeing and what we think are two different things. The survey is telling us people think it's, you know, watching a movie and playing with their device and, you know, talking on the phone, whether it's in their head or, or using... Uh, in vehicle systems. But when you ask what they're actually seeing on the roads, yes, they're seeing some people with, you know, less so with uh, phones in their hands now, but they're seeing people being distracted by gawking at a traffic situation, maybe a collision that they're passing by um, or eating and drinking. Um, You know, those are really the most common things that people
4: are seeing. I had, uh, there was a uh, a fact uh, that I saw, a few years ago, that eating or drinking something behind the wheel is equivalent to having three drinks in your system. And, and I'm not asking you to comment on that, and I can't even substantiate it, but it makes sense that we talk about, well, I'm not going to drive impaired, and yet we're going to try and eat a Big Mac with all the stuff coming out of it behind the wheel.
5: I know. It's incredible. It's incredible. Because we think that eating is such a second nature thing that we can do it without thinking. But the reality is, is when you're driving and you're supposed to be putting your brain power into scanning the road, uh, being, you know, for hazards, whether it's something on the highway or a cat darting out or a child darting out on a residential street, when you are fiddling to put your drink back in the cup holder or, you know, you've spilled something on yourself because like you said, it's come out of your sandwich This takes your eyes off the road and your brain is multifunctioning and it can't actually do the proper attention to what you really, really got to give some importance to, which is driving, the skill of driving.
4: Yeah. So let's look at the definition of distracted. I'm not talking about the legal definition. I'm talking about the dictionary definition, unable to concentrate because one's mind is preoccupied. The definition doesn't say because someone is talking on their cell phone or someone is fiddling with something on the dashboard. It says you're not concentrating at the matter at hand, and that is that you are driving this metal bullet going down the highway.
5: Absolutely. The other thing that, you know, and, and this is a good one, too, is your mind off of it. So people equate a phone call with having the phone in their hand is a really big distraction. Uh, And then, of course, we have hands-free technology. So, yay, we're out of the woodwork, right? We're not. um, It's not the actual way you're having the conversation, although having something in your hand, you know, again, is not proper driving. It's actually the nature of the conversation. And there have been studies that have been done that show that if you are having a conversation in your car with someone in your car, in your, you know, having an argument, it's just as distracting as what we think you know, holding a device mm-hmm. in her hand is or fiddling with, you know, the, the infotainment systems in our car. It's the cognitive nature of the conversation. If you're just calling someone and saying, okay, going to be home in half an hour, uh, y'all okay? Fine. Great. Bye. Or, but if you're on the phone talking about numbers and details of your, you know, renegotiating your mortgage, guess what? The cognitive need in having those in depth conversations is taking you and distracting you from the task of driving. Don't have them in your car. Try not to have arguments in your car um, because that is actually taking your mind off the road.
4: And let's talk about, we talk about sometimes uh, people think of distracted driving as, oh, well, you don't need to listen to music. You don't need to have that phone call. But there is something you need to do, and that is adjust the heat and the, the temperature in your car. And time was that you flicked the fan switch and you adjusted the temperature, and that was it. Now, you've got these computer consoles, and so it's got, you've got to say, okay, I've got to select climate. Okay, now I got to select fan speed. Uh, Now I got to select temperature. And and now it's demanding a lot more concentration, a lot more cognitive skills. And so even things that are necessary can take our concentration away. I'm glad you brought up consoles in the car, because, you know, a lot more cars are
5: being built with bigger display systems, connected apps, uh, so you can bring your Spotify playlists into your car in a much easier fashion. You could even go on your social media channels. You could link into uh, TV shows and videos, and (laughs) that's another concern. Um, But, you know, people did say that they recognize that these, these bigger screens, these consoles do raise the distraction element inside the vehicle. But but most people really like them, and they don't want to see them go. And so, car build car manufacturers are going to keep making what consumers want. Um, you know, so there is some advantage to having bigger scenes, uh, you know, screens to navigate. But CA's most recent big distracted driving campaign that we launched across the country last year, late last year, was about do it all before you drive. Set your GPS, set your playlist. Uh, you know, tell whoever it is that you're coming before you get behind the wheel. Um, you know, have your, just, you know, maybe your GPS is going to talk to you versus you have to keep looking at the screen, but do all of those things that have to like occupy your hands and you got to take your eyes off the road to look at the screen, to set them all up, do it all before you drive, because that is going to limit and mitigate the distractions while
4: you're driving. Because you can turn away literally. And you know what? I only turned away for three seconds. But in three seconds, you doing 100 kilometers an hour, a vehicle in front of you doing 100 kilometers an hour, three seconds can make a huge difference.
5: We've talked about this before. The top three causes of death and injuries on Ontario's roads are distracted driving, impaired driving, and um, sorry, distracted driving, impaired driving, and speeding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these three things, and then you put a couple of those together and you've, we've got, you know, the, the exponential factor raises and the likelihood. So people can say, well, if I'm doing that, you know, there's usually nobody around or I've done it before and it's safe, mm-hmm. but you know, the, you're lucky that you got away with it maybe once or twice, or maybe it's something you do regularly. It only takes once. Mm-hmm. It only takes once. And the outcomes of that one time, you just don't know what's going to happen.
4: Yeah, and, and uh, even not even at highway speeds, driving down a residential street. And you can be doing the speed limit. You can be doing 30, 40 kilometers an hour. Turn away for three seconds and that kid darts in front of you. Yeah. you know, And you can't get that back. You can't, you can't take that back.
5: Yeah. And, and in our survey that we conducted uh, this year, it was one in 10 people, like 11% actually, have been involved in a vehicle collision caused by distracted driving. And you know, it's it's startling that, and 12, 12% of those were, they were the distracted driver. They admitted in this survey, mm-hmm. they were the ones that caused um, the the collision. And another 12% were in a vehicle that was driven by a distracted driver. So it's happening on our roadways. Maybe you're not hearing it every day. I'm hoping we don't need to get to the point where people are hearing it every day. Um, and that we can have conversations like this that highlight the importance of it. And so that people take their own action into their own hands to mitigate
4: it. We're now getting into the summer driving season. I, I really want to bring up drinking and driving, impaired driving. And when I say impaired driving, I'm talking about getting high as well. My fear, Teresa, is almost that people are, are becoming a little more accepting of having a drink or two late. I just find that. I, I find maybe we were all very aggressive in saying, no, we are not going to drink and drive, period. But I think that maybe the message is starting to go to the back of our mind a bit? Would Would you feel that way?
5: Well, we have a lot of things going on right now, right? So we, you know, we've coming out of a period of not being able to socialize the way we used to and and not being able to get out to all of a sudden being able to see family and friends and concerts and enjoy everything that we loved about society, right? So, um, and we've still got some apprehension about traveling around in certain ways. Maybe people still aren't com- comfortable getting into an Uber or, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a cab. Maybe they're not comfortable taking the transit. So, you know, we are seeing younger uh, demographics, younger drivers getting behind the wheel more often now and, and on a daily basis. They they did change their habits from different types of transportation to car driving. Um, And they have different attitudes towards, uh, especially cannabis, right? And Mm -hmm. and driving, they think their driving is the same or better. Um, And we also have messages out there that sort of say, uh, you know, one drink per hour, like gives, gives people a rough estimate. So people are, are trying to decide all of this and what actions they should take based on the things they've heard and the information. The best thing is, is to not drive. Uh, after mm. you either consumed um, drugs or alcohol, I mean that is your best practice to put into place.
4: I what I always say to, to whenever I'm doing any talks on 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 impaired driving at all is, don't make your choice after. Yeah. You know it, it's 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 one thing to be sitting in a bar at a party and say ah you know what I'm okay to drive now. That's not the time to make a choice. You're not making a responsible choice. You can't. It's impossible to make a responsible choice. So if you're going somewhere and you know you're gonna have a drink, or if you're gonna be smoking up, you know what? This isn't we're not we're not trying to preach here or anything, but make your choice before. You know what? I'm gonna have something to drink. How am I gonna get home?
5: Right. It, and cannabis is legal, right? And mm-hmm. there's other I know people are saying, well, well, there's other drugs, prescription. Yes, all of those all all drugs are an issue, right? If anything that can cause cognitive uh, impairment, uh, whether that's a prescription drug that you're on. Um, or whether you're consuming cannabis, right? It is a legal product. Uh, If they can impact your cognitive ability, the reason you're consuming them is they make you feel different. They make you feel good, whether it's a drink with friends and it's part of the social fabric, but you're right. If you're, if you're making that decision at the time of consumption, you know, most people can have some level of discipline. I'm going to go to that party. I'm only going to have a drink. And, you know, maybe, maybe, but honestly, it's very hard just to stick to that one drink, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're wanting to socialize and, and making that decision at that time. You're right. It's just going to be more problematic. The best thing to do is if you want to go out, if you want to consume, even if you don't end up consuming, you actually did the responsible thing and making sure yourself and others were safe. If it, even if you didn't party the way you were planning to party and ended up having to take you know a taxi home versus driving your own vehicle. If we all just get into the habit of what are the, the choices to make before you go so that whatever happens, you're prepared for it and you're doing something that's going to keep you safe and others safe, that's all a win-win.
4: And if you're hosting a party, you should be concerned. You should be saying, hey, how are you getting home?
5: There are court cases that have held um, party hosts responsible for the collisions that have happened or the death or injury arising out of you know, people's consumptions. Um, and so that is something to think about, too, right, that that you have that responsibility to make sure that the people who got to your your barbecue or your party um, are getting home in a responsible fashion. If you've served alcohol or they brought alcohol to consume, you know, that would be a, you know, something that you need to think about, too, for your own um, safety.
4: All right. Closing words, Teresa. What do you want to tell people?
5: We're excited as everybody else that, you know, it's it's summertime and people are getting out and seeing loved ones. Um, protect yourself and those loved ones by uh, making some choices ahead of time that'll keep everybody safe. And don't drink and, uh, and drive or, or consume cannabis and drive uh, and don't
1: drive distracted.
4: All right. Thank you, Teresa. Have a great What's Left of the Holiday Weekend. Thanks, you too. All right. Teresa DeFeliz from uh, CAA.
1: After the break, a visit with the Golden Girls.
0: Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. a friend
1: Welcome back to The Feed. Golden Girls Canada, their mission is to bring together homeowners and homemates to create a comfortable living arrangement for all involved. And the benefits are numerous. You save money, you make friends, you age joyfully, and you have fun. Dorothy Mazzo is the founder and president of Golden Home Sharing Connections and its online database, Golden Girls and Guys Canada. What a thrill to have you on the show, Dorothy, and how appropriate that your first name is Dorothy. (laughs)
6: There's <laughs> no place like home.
1: Oh, oh but the other, it, one of the leading ladies uh, on Golden Girls was Dorothy Zbornak. So I love oh, that. I course. love that connection. So so let's <laughs> let's talk about Golden Girls Canada, really golden home-sharing connections. What is it all about? How does it work?
6: Uh, well, the, the database was really the first idea that I came up with to do it, which is helping people find um find someone to share a home with. They can have a home to share or if you're looking for a place to live. It works almost like a dating site. But as I I went forward, I realized that really there was a need for more education and just uh, uh, explaining about the idea because it it really is a paradigm shift in the way people live.
1: So what are the basics then? How do you get like-minded people together that will find joy in each other's company can live well together and the safety aspect of it as well?
6: Okay, well... Certainly, uh, the, the basic database is one way, but whether you find someone through my database or whether you find someone through Craigslist or Kijiji or just word of mouth, however you find people, the really important part is that you find someone that you like and you trust and your way of living is compatible enough that you're comfortable living together.
1: And where do you come in? Let's say I'm looking for I'm looking for a new living situation. I'd like to share a home or an apartment with someone who is similar in age and in way of life. How do you help bring us together? Well, I
6: provide the vehicle of the database. That's basically it. It works almost like a dating site. Mm. I'm I'm not a um I'm not a matchmaker. That's one way. There are companies that will do that, which will interview both parties and decide if it's a good fit and then put people together. But mine is more for self-directed people that pretty well know who they are and what they like and have the energy to do something themselves. But then I do provide the tools, which is, as a member, you also have access to uh, the workshops that I do, which really go into more depth about compatibility looking about how you like to live, what's important to you, and then how to go about vetting people that you might meet that you think might be a good fit.
1: So give me an example of a success story without naming names and, and where they live, how they live. Are they, Is somebody renting from the owner? Are they both co-owners now? Are they each renting under the same roof? Give me an example of, of the success of Golden Girls Canada.
6: Okay, well, certainly uh, my pet... The pet the method that I like to use is the one if it's a homeowner who owns the home and then they are sharing a home with people who are looking for an affordable and um, stable, I guess you would say, place to live um, and to live almost with a family or friends. That's certainly the model that I'm most familiar with because I have owned a home and shared it with other people and also I've, I've lived in homes owned by other people. And there are also people who have bought a home together and that's something that uh, especially older folks can do if they have a lot of equity in their home and can pool the resources and buy something wonderful together. And that's what the women in Port Perry did, if you're familiar with them. They call themselves the Golden Girls of Port Perry. And they are living, they've got this wonderful big house, which they've renovated and added to suit themselves. And they're living at, I think, about $1,500 a month, oh. last I knew, to cover everything from their household expenses, to their, 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 um, their food costs, their utilities, everything included, for about 1500 a month, which is practically unheard of these days. And yet they're living well.
1: And how important is this database and this concept now with the cost of living so high and affordability just so difficult and so low?
6: Well, I do think that that's one reason that it's gaining in recognition because of the fact that costs are so high. Even to find a place to rent together, I know it's it's not that easy because even if you have four people that want to rent a home together, the rents are still pretty high. And the a single senior, I think the average income of a single senior is only about $26,000 a year which is not going to pay for a lot of housing.
1: So you can save money, you make friends, how do you know that you're com- going to be compatible? I mean that's that's always been the age-old question whenever you share a home with anybody even if it's a family member.
6: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and sometimes family members can be great housemates and sometimes they're not. So it depends on the family and it always depends on the individuals. And that's why it's important to be intentional about it. And I do as part of the workshops and as a as benefit of membership uh, there's an access to a list of about 16 questions that covers everything from how do you use the kitchen? Do you like to cook? Uh, do you like to share meals with people? Do you like to entertain a lot? Do you like it quiet at home? Do you like music all the time or quiet pets? You know, the basics, pets, alcohol, <laughs> and smoking, I guess, is the three, yeah. the three big ones that people think of. But, um, yeah. And what are your interests in life? And are you really a go-getter and out and about, or do you like it quiet at home? And it's not that everybody has to be identical, but you need to be able to balance, um, If someone, say, a a night owl and someone else is um, an early bird, you know, as long as someone knows you have to be quiet in the morning or quiet at night, and you have to talk about it and be intentional about it before you start sharing. Honestly, I think a lot of people should do this before they get married, and they don't. (laughs) They think everything's going to be great because they're madly in love. (laughs) You know, we all know how that sometimes turns out. So, yeah, being intentional about it and really being open and honest with each other and, and, uh, you know, take your time.
1: And is it strictly for seniors, or is that just where the need is these days?
6: Well, certainly the, there's a large need with seniors, because so many seniors that don't own a home need an affordable place to live, and the waiting list for rent and gear to income accommodations is, is years long. And it's certainly not just seniors, because millennials are finding the same thing. In fact, some of them are teaming up to buy homes together, because no one, they can't afford to buy their first home on their own. So certainly it's across the board. My focus is seniors, because that's basically... How I got into it through my work as a seniors uh, real estate specialist,
1: one of the aspects that that really struck me from reading everything on your website and listening to some of your webinars and seminars, you can age joyfully if you are in a home that is comfortable and harmonious with the other people and and full of joy. I mean, that really makes aging just so much more pleasurable.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then safety aspect too. I mean, I've heard stories of uh, someone who lived alone and their daughter called them every day at five o'clock, faithfully, to make sure she was okay. And then one day, um, right after they hung up, the mother had a stroke and nobody knew about it till the next day. Whereas if you're sharing a home, yes, you're living together joyfully and you also have each other's back Mm -hmm. in an emergency, you know? And that's actually kind of a nice, safe feeling. And as to the joy, really, to know that you've got each other's back.
1: So this works and of course in my mind I'm thinking of The Golden Girls the television show and and how well they got along the the, the age that they were when that the show was kind of put together and the concept of it was quite revolutionary way back then but it works today and it will work in the future if anybody's interested in connecting with you by the way you're not you're not just gals you're you're talking about guys as well so it's golden girls and guys canada (laughs) what what, what's the first step well they can certainly
6: send me an email at hello at goldengirlscanada.ca if they wish or they can call me at 416-550-4015 and there's lots of information on the website as well, which is goldenhomesharingconnections.ca. Mm-hmm.
1: I just want to say thank you for being a friend, Dorothy Mazo. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. When we come back, a new report on body checking in youth hockey.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer, and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The NHL season may be done, but the debate over body checking continues. Jim Lang with the new report.
7: Well, obviously, hockey is a huge part of the fabric of this country, and training young players to be the next Nathan McKinnon or... Austin Matthews is a difficult task, and there's been a recent study done by a professor out west talking about the the what happens to young kids if they start body checking too early and the potential for injury to talk more about it. Thrilled to be speaking to someone from the University of Calgary, Paul Eliason. Hi, Paul, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. This is, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this story because I was always taught that it's an important skill not just to hit, but to learn how to take a hit to protect yourself. How did your Information, your research, your knowledge going through this process changed a lot of people's attitudes about that old way of thinking? Yeah, so we have really strong evidence that if you disallow body checking in youth ice
8: hockey, you're going to reduce rates of injury, you're going to reduce rates of concussion specifically. I mean, we've shown that um, through the national policy change uh, by Hockey Canada, uh, which raised body checking from the U13 to the U15 age group. We showed significant reductions of injury and concussions. Um. after that policy change, and then even regionally and, and locally, some associations um, at the U15 and U18 age groups have disallowed body checking at some non-elite levels of play. And once again, we've shown that that'll significantly reduce uh, your injury and concussions. Now, like you said, there are still some people in the hockey community that think that, well, body checking should be introduced earlier. Because that experience with body checking will help protect them from injuries and concussions when they get older and play in the older age groups where body checking is allowed in games. That's what we wanted to look at is that uh, the body checking experience
7: and injury um, at the U18 age group. Hmm. And now, 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 here's what I think when I think about that. Kids thirteen and fourteen are jacked up in testosterone, get really wound up playing hockey. But I always think about their upper necks, their shoulders, their traps. Uh, it's they're so skinny, their head just flops around. How much of that is a factor that physically they're just not developed yet enough to take or give hits?
8: Yeah, so we um, we adjust for many covariates in our analysis, um, weight being one of them because that's uh, obviously indicative of players. So part of it's indicative of a player's size. I mean, I think a little bit of your question was re- regards to neck strength, which mm-hmm. is certainly an interesting avenue for concussion research. It's not something we looked at particularly in this study, um, but certainly a focus in in some others' research. And I hope we'll actually have more clarity with regards to neck strength as a potential risk factor for concussion specifically. Um, we have a, a a consensus statement coming up in October where all the world experts in concussion are going to get together and kind of inform the the next. Um, best evidence uh, and, and treatment for concussions. So we'll, we'll learn a little bit more there.
7: Well, Paul, I mean, I, you know what hockey's like. Uh, trying to change attitudes and maybe change ways of people's thinking isn't easy. How has this been received in the hockey community when you re- released this study, this in-depth study that you spent so long looking into? Yeah, so,
8: I mean, we're, we're very fortunate that we work very closely with our um, community partners or hockey associations. So this was research was done in partnership with hockey Canada, with all hockey, Alberta, British Columbia, um, and, uh, and the minor associations as well. So including hockey, Edmonton hockey, Calgary. And because I mean, they want to make evidence informed decisions, so they're, they're making best policy choices. And, and also so that if they ever make a decision and the hockey community um, will ask them about well why are you doing this? They could show them the evidence. Say, well, this is, this is why we're making our choices. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's backed up with evidence.
7: And, and, you know, I've spoken to trainers and doctors who've had the difficult task of telling a 14 year old kid that you can't play hockey anymore because you've had too many injuries and too many head injuries and, and you've hurt yourself too much. And, and is that, was that in your back of your mind as you did this research doctor that, you know, we trying to keep kids playing hockey and not have them told they can't play anymore before they're even 16 years old.
8: Yeah, exactly. So, we're trying to prevent injuries, keep kids playing the game um, longer and, and keep them physically active for longer as well. It's important uh, consideration as well. I think that there's still going to be the need for some elite levels to have body checking, Um, stay with body checking. That's a really important skill for those top elite athletes. So where that cut point is, where you're going to have that, um, the line of who's going to body check and not, it's going to be determined by the hockey associations, but I still think it's important for players to choose or have an opportunity to play in non-body-checking leagues if they just want to continue to play hockey because they love it and, and they want to uh, still be seeing their friends and be physically active and do the things that they love, but in a more safe way where they can help prevent injuries and uh, and prevent concussions.
7: I think that's a a very interesting point you brought up. And, and, and I think about my wife and I, we have... Uh, girls in their late teens. And we were surprised. I mean, you know, I got married later in life and I'm like, wait a sec, these 13 year old boys look huge. I don't remember being that big at that age. And you talked about weight. And I wonder if some kids maybe who are uh, maturing physically at a slower rate or not as big as some of their kids would feel safer because they're not as big as some of their other 13, 14 year old boys playing in that kind of league.
8: Yeah, exactly. Um, so Again, it's it's giving them an opportunity to um, play in a non-body checking league if they want. Um, it's also you bring up a point of um, kind of body checking skill development, which I think is a, a very big opportunity for for further research, but also a very important um, area that Hockey Canada is just really trying to work with um, coaches to try and de- further develop those skills, um, whether whether you're big or small, really to to um, properly give and and receive a body check. And it can be very tricky, right? Like you mentioned, when you have um, some of these ages, um, some of these players are very different sizes. So just trying to do that in a really safe manner.
7: You know, Paul, and I think about Alberta's very own Cale McCarr, who's one of the top three or four players on the planet right now after the playoffs a year he's had. And he's got a real ability because of his foot speed, because of his body angles. He hits players, but he's not sending them over the boards. He's knocking them off the puck. And I think that's also something Hockey Canada and coaching levels have to teach, that you're not trying to be a guided missile on skates. You're just trying to knock the player off the puck so you can gain possession.
8: Exactly. So, I mean, you got to remember that body checking is, the last step in, um, in the process of, of, um, uh, of body contact. So if you go back to Review Hockey Canada's um, four-step band, or whatever, you can teach body angling really early, right? And it's yes. important to me that body contact is incorporated to, to younger leagues. But really, like you said, you don't need to um, really go out and enter a player just to separate the puck.
7: Um- You know, once upon a time, I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s, I I don't remember my parents being overly concerned about us getting hurt. Have we changed as a society or are we just more educated that, hey, if we don't take some steps now and start thinking about research like you've just done, we could have a lot of teenage kids with head injuries that were preventable.
8: Yeah, we've come a long way. I mean, 10 years ago, when some of the first work uh, led by Dr. Carolyn Emery out of the University of Calgary, First, showed that um, you know rates of injury and concussion specifically were four times higher if you played in a body checking league versus a non-body checking league, and maybe we should we should uh, think about raising the age of body checking to help prevent injuries. I mean, that, that was very contentious ten years ago. People thought we were going to ruin the game, players weren't going to develop, and Canada was no longer going to be a, a superpower in hockey. Um, so I think we've come a long way. We've shown that hey, you know what? It's okay to focus on skill development a little bit longer. If, have kids playing um, playing in a safer game so they're not getting injured as much. And then again, they can kind of set them up for, for more skill development. And hey, look, I mean, we still got a lot of great hockey, Canadian hockey players playing in the NHL today.
7: And I And I think in the big picture for Hockey Canada, there's so many kids now who are playing basketball and soccer and different sports, because A, it's cheaper, B, it's safer. And if we can show kids in Canada, the young boys and girls across the nation, that there's a safe way to play this sport and be a part of it, I think that will help hockey in the long run.
8: Absolutely. Like you said, we're, we're trying to keep kids safe um, and keep them active, keep them in the game longer. Um, ultimately, if kids love hockey, they want to play hockey, right? If, not, if they find other sports, that's great too, but um, they want to play the sports that they want to play.
7: Uh, doctor, obviously this is a big part of your postdoctoral associate with the University of Calgary. So a- after such an, an immense study, what's next for you?
8: Oh, so that's, that's <laughs> the trouble of research. You you always finish one study and you're on to the next one. So we have lots more work um, trying to identify more risk factors for injury, um, look at body checking, skill development, like I highlighted, is, is a great future opportunity. I think we have um, a lot of work to do in women's hockey, mm, I think, mm-hmm. Um, so we did include females that played in, in boys' leagues that played in body checking in our study, uh, but looking at um, female-only leagues that, despite having uh, a rule that they don't play with body checking, still have very high rates of injury and concussions. So I think that's another great opportunity for future work.
7: It's fascinating work, and it's it's a, it's a good opportunity for Canadians of all levels, house league, rep hockey, people involved in Hockey Canada, or just fans, to take a look at the sport and how we can make it better. Uh, thank you so much for you and your research. Uh, it's really opened a lot of eyes, so much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.